0: So
1: Would you remain standing with me as we read God's inspired and powerful word this morning. There's a small change in what's in your printed materials. Today we'll be reading 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verses 8 through 11. So please turn in your Bibles with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verses 8 to 11. and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. You may be seated. This morning I want to remind you that giving is a form of worshiping God and I'd like to encourage you to give joyfully, prayerfully, and sacrificially on a regular basis. You can give online, in person, using the box at the back of the worship center, or by mail via checks to the church. And as we go to prayer, we'll be lifting up the upcoming Africa Missions Trip. And I'd like to invite that team to come up to the front for prayer. Uh, we have Steve Skelly, Tony Verdesia, Connor Haas and Pastor Mike that are leaving this Thursday for Africa to teach and train pastors and they will return on February 17th. Pastor Mike is not feeling well today, a little bit under the weather, uh, but he's still planning to go. And as a result, Matthew Holbrook will be uh, giving our message this morning. So with that, let's pray together. Our great and mighty Heavenly Father, we praise you. We praise you this morning for you are alone are worthy of our praise as the prophet Isaiah wrote O Lord you are my God I will exalt you I will praise your name for you have done wonderful things plans formed of old faithful and true and this morning we're reminded all around us of the beauty of your creation Uh, by your word the universe was created so that all that is seen is made by things that are not able to be seen by our own eyes and how you hold all things together from the, from the min- most minutest of particles to the ex- expanse of our entire universe. And scripture tells us that you do this by the breath of your hand, by the breath of your mouth. Lord, we, you deserve all the praise and the glory and we take confidence in your goodness and your power and your grace and your love. Because we recognize that we sinned and we, have, uh, we deserve nothing more than death. Every day we hear stories... Of crimes and and heinous acts, and wonder what's going on in this world that's so broken and infected with sin and death. And it's just a reminder, Lord, that uh, we could focus in on the fact that you sent your Son, Jesus, as our Savior, who by his life, death, and resurrection is is making all things new. You've you've. Re- you us, you've transformed us, you've r- r- ransomed us by the, paid the penalty of our sin, and you've adopt us, adopted us into your family with all the rights and benefits included. Not because we did anything to merit, because just that you're a good, good father, and we love you for that. Lord, we thank you for your word and for the work that you're doing in and through this church body, uh, building us up in faith through the reading and study of your word through our fellowship with one another, and through the various ministries that are serving the body. And as we consider these ministries, this morning we pray that you would bless this team that is headed to Africa. Lord, we pray that you would bless them as they share the gospel and they provide ground support to the various ministries that they're going to reach and interact with. Lord, we pray that you would just keep these men in good health, especially Pastor Mike, who is under the weather right now, as they get ready to depart for this trip this Thursday and provide them with safe travels on their journey. We pray that they would be a blessing to the pastors and the local churches they, they will interact with, and that their ministry would be uplifting and encouraging and useful to them. Lord, please sustain them with the energy needed to fulfill their great agenda, their full agenda with, of preaching and teaching, and we praise you for the work that you're going to do through them during this trip. And Lord, now as we intend to look into your word, prepare our hearts, give us ears to hear, minds to be attentive, and the humility to be challenged. May you receive all the praise and glory, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. As our rock and our peace, our fortress, you are our cornerstone and the power of sin is crushed in you. Lord, we praise you as the one who gave your life for us and rose again. We know that you rule over all things. We pray right now that as we hear from your word, by your spirit, you would open our hearts to receive your truth. Would you change our lives? Would you help us to love the things that you love and to love you most of all? And it's in your
2: name we pray. Amen well good morning is that me there we go that's better well no maybe not all right well we will get started um Good morning, Uh, Pastor Mike has been preaching through Ephesians, and uh, he has spent some time here in Ephesians chapter 1, and uh, in particular, the last several weeks, we've seen God's sovereignty in salvation, in particular, His sovereign power in the predestination of His people. And so, for the next two weeks... Uh, I'd like to peel back the layers of God's sovereignty to understand the importance and the relevance of this great truth in two practical ways. Next week we're going to look at the ultimate purpose of God's sovereignty, but this week we're going to look at the essential power of God's sovereignty, the essential power of God's sovereignty, and we're going to consider this specifically in the context of human pain, And more specifically, our pain. So I've titled this message this morning, God's Purpose and Power in Pain. God's Purpose and Power in Pain. And so as we come to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, I want to set the context here. And in this letter, Paul is defending the integrity of his character and his ministry. And he's defending himself against. The attacks of false teachers in the city of Corinth they've assaulted him in an attempt to destroy his credibility so that they can undermine his doctrine and they can teach a false gospel and apparently one of the attacks was to say that Paul was suffering all of the time because of sin that he was put in prison and beaten And having all of these challenges because God was punishing him. And so Paul answers this accusation at the beginning of the chapter. And he emphasizes God's presence with him to comfort him in his suffering, not to punish him. He does acknowledge the pain and the suffering. But in verses 3 to 7, he highlights God's comfort to him. And this brings us to verse 8. And the first of our four-point outline, and I'm going to give it to you all at once right now. Our outline is the pain, the purpose, the power, and the plea. The pain, the purpose, the power, and the plea. And we start off with the pain. We all know life is painful. Everyone experiences pain and sorrow and turmoil. No one is exempt. There's physical pain, broken relationships, broken hearts, crushed dreams, family worry, financial hardship and stress, unfulfilled desires, longings so strong that they physically hurt, moms exhausted and overwhelmed, employees exhausted and overwhelmed at work and school, believers who are exhausted and overwhelmed, With the weight of sin and the battle that seems to have no end and no relief, ongoing uneasiness because of an unknown future or decisions to make where right answers seem to be unknowable, pressures internal and external, depression over the lack of purpose or lack of direction or lack of accomplishment. Then there's loss of family members emotional trauma that comes with that loss and then the practical problems and changes that accompany the absence of someone on whom you once depended. The list goes on. Life is painful and it's because we live in a broken world, a contaminated world. And Paul knew this. Paul knew this very clearly. And so we come to verse 8 and Paul relating To those who know this pain, he says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. We don't want you to be unaware that there's this affliction that we've experienced. We don't know exactly what that affliction is, but the way that Paul has put this, it seems that he is assuming that the Corinthians know something about it that maybe they've, they've heard through various sources that's been reported to them what Paul has endured. But it's clear that the Corinthians, while maybe they know something about his affliction, they don't know the weight or the severity of the, the affliction. They don't know how bad it was, how serious it was. And it seems that this affliction happened after Paul wrote 1 Corinthians. So we're in 2 Corinthians 1, but he didn't mention anything about this in 1 Corinthians Uh, So it appears that it happened between the time he finished writing the letter to 1 Corinthians and when he came about to write 2 Corinthians. And he says here in verse 8 that this happened in Asia. And if we go back to 1 Corinthians, at the end of that letter, in chapter 16, starting in verse 5, Paul says to the Corinthians in his first letter, he says, After I go through Macedonia, which is in Greece, he says, I will come to you in Corinth. For I'll be going through Macedonia. Perhaps I'll stay with you for a while or even spend the winter so that you can help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now and make only a passing visit. He's saying, look, I don't want to come now. I want to come when I can spend some real time with you. And he says, I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. And then in verse 8 he says, but I will stay on at Ephesus. Now where is Ephesus? It's in modern day Turkey, which is in Asia. He says, I'll stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost because a great door for effective work has opened to me and there are many who oppose me. There are many who opposed Paul and he knew going to Ephesus, he was walking into opposition. And he knew walking into uh, uh, Ephesus that there could be those who would create great difficulty for him And so he's telling the Corinthians in his first letter, look, I'm going to Macedonia and I'm going to come through Corinth, um, but I'm aiming to end up in Ephesus. And so it appears that Paul made that journey, went through Ephesus, and then um, after that wrote his second letter to the Corinthians. And so it very well could be that this affliction that he's referring to might have happened while Paul was in Ephesus. And it's worth noting that later Paul comes to write a letter to the church in Ephesus, and in it, how does he start off his letter? It's what we've been looking at. He starts off extolling God's ultimate purposes and his sovereignty over everything, and specifically in his predestination of specific sinners that he would save. So if this affliction happened in Ephesus, and Paul is writing now to the Corinthians thinking about what happened, uh, it's worth looking that when he wrote to the Ephesians, what comes to his mind first is God's sovereignty in carrying him through whatever affliction he was in. But now he's writing and talking about this affliction to the Corinthians, and so still in verse 8, he says, For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Paul says we were utterly burdened. This phrase means that uh, that they were Uh, unbearably crushed to the point of depression, unbearably crushed. And then he adds, beyond our strength, utterly burdened beyond our strength, unbearably crushed beyond our strength. In other words, beyond our ability to survive, like being crushed under a stone and not having the strength to move it. It will crush you to death. And this is how Paul felt Have you ever felt that way? Paul can relate. And Paul was not a weak man. Later in this letter, Paul gives a glimpse into what his life had been like. He says that he'd been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, been exposed to death again and again. Five times, he says, he received uh, 40 lashes from the Jews. Three times he was beaten with rods. Once he was uh, pelted with stones. Three times shipwrecked. He says, I spent a night and a day in the open sea, constantly on the move, in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, in danger from false believers. He says, I have labored and toiled and often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Paul had endured a lot. This was not a weak man. But whatever kind of physical capability that Paul had, whatever kind of emotional stamina Paul had, whatever he is referring to here in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, in verse 8, he reached the end. It was beyond his ability. It was beyond his capacity. And at the end of verse 8, he says, we despaired of life itself. He says, we lost the will to live. This word despaired, It's a long Greek word, but in the middle of that word is the word poros, from which we get the word passage. And what the the word is really implying when he says, we despaired, he's basically saying we had no passage, no exit, no way out, no escape. He's saying we were utterly lost and without hope. This was the end of the line. He says, we despaired of life itself. And then he punctuates it in verse 9. He says, indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. Paul had passed a death sentence on himself. He didn't even have any hope of life in any sense. And this phrase that we received the sentence of death, this includes the, uh, the Greek word apokryma, which is a technical word for an official resolution. And this is a way of Paul saying I passed a a formal legal sentence of death. Like the death certificate has been signed. This is final. Paul is saying there is no hope and he was in tremendous pain. Ongoing pain and he saw no way out, no escape. Paul understands the pain that we as humans feel living in this broken world. That's the pain and then we come to Number two, the purpose. And in verse 9, the second half, it says, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves. Some translations say in order that we should not trust in ourselves. That's the purpose of the pain. The purpose of the pain was that we would not rely on ourselves. God's purpose is twofold, actually, and so this is the first part, that we would not rely on ourselves. And... We have to ask the question, why would God allow Paul to feel such pain, such despair, such hopelessness? Or to take it a step further, not just why would God allow this, but why would God intend for Paul to feel such pain, despair, and hopelessness? And the answer, at least the first part, is so that we would not rely on ourselves. So that we would not trust in ourselves. Paul's saying, God brought us to the place where we had no escape. Nothing in us could save the day. There was no ploy, no plan, no strategy, no strength, no human help, no amount of money, no resource that could provide rescue. We had no one and no thing that we could call on. And then Paul continues. He says, but that, all of that pain, everything that he was experiencing was to make us rely not on ourselves, but what? but on God but on God twofold purpose the pain was so that Paul would learn and would know not to rely on himself but to rely on God if you've ever been taught what to do when you see somebody drowning what's the first thing that you're to understand don't jump jump in and try to rescue them while they're flailing all around if you do They're liable to fight you and strike you and possibly bring you down, and you both would go down. But what's the instruction? That you wait until they have nothing left, until they can't fight anymore, and they've come to the very end of their strength. They have no ability to save themselves. They have no strength, maybe even no consciousness, and that's when you can jump in and bring them to safety. And that's where God takes us sometimes to the place where we can't even pretend that we have an answer and there's no sign of strength in ourselves. No hope to be found and when we're at the very end then we're not fighting him. And he says, my strength is enough. And sometimes only when we're in those situations, maybe only then, do we really hear him. My strength is more than enough. And that's because in God we find real power. It's in Him that we find real power, not in ourselves. And so we see the pain, and then we see how God brings about a purpose in that pain. That brings us to point three, the power. Paul describes what he is to look to, that God allowed him to experience this pain so that he would rely not on himself, but on God, who what? Who raises the dead. But on God, who raises the dead. He's talking about on God, who has ultimate power, power even over death. The only way out for Paul was going to be in the hands of God because he's the one who has the power even to raise the dead. And for Paul, he was as good as dead. He had pronounced the death sentence. And so that's the power that Paul needed the power of a God who raises the dead. And I'd suggest that's exactly the kind of power that we need in our lives the power of a God who raises the dead. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul says, So to keep me the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I know you know the pain. We've all felt pain in life. And God's saying to Paul, Paul, I brought about this pain, I allowed this pain to direct you not to rely on yourself, but to rely on the one who raises the dead. And Paul says, I'm content then with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. Because when I'm weak and I have no place else to look, that's when I'm holding on most fiercely to God. And more importantly, he is showing his power in me and holding on to me. For when I am weak, then I'm strong I can remember being at a high ropes course and uh, being there with a, a bunch of high schoolers. And I was watching this girl that was way up on this tower. And she was standing on a platform about 35 feet up. And swinging in front of her was a trapeze bar. And she was supposed to jump out and grab the bar, but she was petrified. She was visibly shaking, and people from the ground and all around her were yelling encouragement, telling her she could do it. But the more that people encouraged her, the more afraid she was. And so she broke down crying. And then she was sobbing, and her whole body was shaking. Fear overwhelmed her. And then finally, with much encouragement, she tried to make the jump but she was shaking so much and her muscles were so weak she barely made it halfway to the bar and she started to plummet to the ground and she screamed but almost immediately the cable attached to her harness caught and she was gently lowered to the ground she was completely safe she knew she was wearing a harness it wasn't a surprise to her But she was overwhelmed with what she saw in front of her and she trusted in her own abilities and not in the harness. But she was never in any danger. We're so often terrified by our own predicaments and our own situations that we lose sight of the fact that there's the harness of God's care wrapped around us. Our ignoring of that reality doesn't change the certainty of his hold on us, but it does destroy the peace. God's holding on to us with the power of one who raises the dead. And sometimes he allows circumstances in our lives so that we would look not to ourselves, but to trust the one who has that power. Verse 10, Paul says, he, God, delivered us, From such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him, we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. There's a past, present, and future context to this. Paul is saying, He did deliver us, he's delivering us now, and he's going to deliver us again. We're setting our hope totally on him. My hope is only in God, my hope is in him alone. And God brings us through circumstances to Give us clarity of vision to see that really in this broken and fallen world that is contaminated by sin, in which it seems that everything is spinning out of control and that it seems that it is chaos and randomness, in the middle of all of that, God is totally sovereign. God is totally powerful. He has the power to raise the dead. He has the power over all things. And we place our hope only in Him. And when we can't see that, God allows circumstances into our lives to strip everything else away and says, just look to me. One of my favorite psalms is Psalm 42. It starts off, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? The psalmist is writing and he says, I'm, I'm panting, I'm thirsting for God, but at the same time, I'm, I'm flooded by tears. And my tears are mocking me. My tears are saying to me in the midst of my pain, my tears are saying to me, where is your God? And he says in verse 4, Psalm 42, these things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in the procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. And then he says, why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Like, you feel the pendulum swing that's going on with the psalmist? On the one hand, he's saying, I'm panting for God. But on the other hand, he's saying, but then why are have all these tears and all of this sorrow? And then he comes back and he says, I'm like leading the line of the people coming to the house of God to praise and to worship and I'm singing my heart out and and I feel good and happy but then I turn around and my soul is cast down and there's so much turmoil and he's swinging back and forth. And then he speaks to his soul and he says, soul, hope in God. Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. He's saying, whatever is happening around me, it's all to bring me to the point that my hope would be in God. In Habakkuk chapter 3, Habakkuk says, after going through all kinds of trials and challenges, he says, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines... The produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Habakkuk knew where his salvation came from, where his hope was. In Job chapter 13, when Job is feeling the weight and the the suffering that he went through in the first part of Job, He says, speaking of God, though he slay me, what? I will hope in him. The team just sang up here this morning, my hope alone, my cornerstone, the power of sin is crushed in him. And What's the power of sin? It's death. It's been overcome by Jesus at the cross. And then it goes on. In the chorus of that song, my rock, my peace, my fortress strong, the risen one has done what? Has raised me up. The one who raises the dead, the one who rose from the dead himself, the one who has conquered sin and death, he raises me up. Paul, in, first, in 2 Corinthians 1, he's saying, God brought pain into my life so that I would rely not on myself, but on God who raises the dead. Hope in God. Anything else we hope in is fleeting. It's impotent, without power, feeble, ultimately untrustworthy, unsatisfying. Hope in God. Why is he leaving you in your misery and in your difficulty right now? So that you would fully depend on him and find joy and peace and treasure that you can't understand until you have nothing left but him. Hope in God. If you're a believer in Jesus, He has solved your biggest problem. You were on the road to hell. You were worthy of death, worthy of eternal damnation because of your sins, separated from Him for forever. And God sent His Son, perfect and holy, to die on the cross in your place as your substitute and that by putting faith in Him, we receive His righteousness and we stand before Him, blameless, with great joy, Saved from our sin and saved from hell, that's the biggest problem you could ever have in your entire life. And God has solved that problem. Why do we stress and worry about anything else? Everything else is so much smaller. Hope in God who raises the dead. So we have the pain and the purpose and the power, and that brings us to the plea. Verse 11. Paul says, you also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Paul was always pleading with people to pray for him. And this is the plea. He's pleading with people to pray for him. God is sovereign. And at the same time, he's designed that he will act through our prayers. And he calls us to pray for each other and to invoke his sovereign power. So here, Paul calls for prayer. He's asking for prayer. He's pleading for prayer. God has rescued him, but Paul knows the necessity of the power of God in prayer. And so he asks, he says, you also must help us by prayer. John MacArthur said, in prayer, human impotence casts itself at the feet of divine omnipotence. Human impotence casts itself at the feet of divine omnipotence. Thus, the duty of prayer is not to modify God's power, but to glorify it. We pray seeking God's power, looking for God's power, and in so doing, we glorify it in our dependence and our hope in Him. We're not trying to change God's plan. We're trying to align with it and to live in His power and in His plan and in His purpose. And why do we do that? Paul says, so that many would give thanks. Paul asks that they pray and ask that the church join in prayer so that when God's power is revealed, it will be recognized and many will respond and thank God for His salvation, that many will rejoice in Him. And so to consider this further, I want to invite you to to turn to James chapter 5, and we're going to be looking at the passage starting in verse 13. I should note in this that there is a difference of opinion amongst uh, theologians and pastors how to interpret this passage. Um, There are many that... uh, would uh, agree with what I'm going to explain to you here today, but you need to know there are other understandings of this. But I'm going to tell you how I understand this passage and uh, why I think that it's important to understand it in that way. But as we do, as we come to James 5, we need to understand the overall context of the whole letter that James wrote. And starting in James 1, verse 1, James says he's writing this to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. To those scattered abroad, it says in some translations. The church has been scattered by persecution. And this is the audience and the context in which James is writing. He's writing a letter to Christians who have been scattered abroad because of persecution. And so in verse 2 of chapter 1, James says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking In nothing, So James is saying to those who have been persecuted and scattered everywhere and are running for their lives in a very real way, James says, count it joy when you encounter trials. Why? Because God is working in that to produce in you hupomene is the word. One of my favorite Greek words, endurance. Hupomene, the ability to stand under a great weight. It's the same word that's used in other literature to describe Atlas and his ability to stand under the weight of the world. And James is writing, saying, "Count it joy when you encounter various trials, knowing that that the testing of your faith is going to produce hupomene, steadfastness, endurance, the ability to stand under great weight." And so, this is the context that James is writing in. He's pointing his readers. To be steadfast and to endure in persecution, in pain, in difficulty, in suffering. He then goes on and calls his readers to not doubt or be like the wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. He's calling them to be steadfast in the middle of the persecution. And then he tells them, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. He's pointing them past the persecution, past the suffering, to the crown of life pointing them to Jesus. This is the theme of his letter, and this carries all the way through in everything that James is writing. And then it brings us to chapter 5, and it's continuing in the same theme. And starting in verse 13, James says, From verses 13 to verse 18, the words pray or prayer or praise, which is a form of prayer, shows up eight times in six verses. The theme of this passage, this section of Scripture, is about prayer. And the context is persecution. Or in our context, we can talk about it in pain and in, um, and in suffering. And Paul is writing, calling for Prayer. It doesn't seem to make sense then that as he is writing this whole letter, urging his readers who are persecuted Christians scattered abroad, it doesn't make sense that as he has urged them to be steadfast and to endure, that all of a sudden he's talking about the healing from physical sickness. But what does it make sense and what does it look like he is talking about? Well, it starts off in verse 13, "'Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray.'" Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. This word cheerful is just the idea of that it's well with their soul. If anyone, if their soul is well, their soul, their inner being, the, the spirit of their soul is well, let them sing praise. And so what he starts off by saying is, Is anyone suffering in this persecution? Then let us pray for them. But those who find that even in the midst of persecution that their soul is well, Let them sing praise, which is another form of prayer. And then we come to verse 14, where James says, is anyone among you sick? And we see starting here, this is the first of two words that James uses to um, refer to the condition of the people he's describing, and they're both translated as sick. One time in verse 14, and one time in verse 15. And so this first one, in verse 14, is anyone among you sick? And the word that's used here is astheneo, and it's translated as sick, but this word is used about 35 times in the New Testament, and more than half of the time that this word is translated in most translations, it's not translated as sick in other verses, it's usually translated as weak. And so an example of that would be in Romans 5, verse 6, it says, for while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. And we understand that, that it makes sense that that is weak there and not talking about physical sickness. It's talking about spiritual weakness. While we were still spiritually weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Or the verse that we already read from later in 2 Corinthians when Paul says, But he, Jesus, said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamity. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Same word that's used in James five is the is the same word used in Second Corinthians twelve, and we see it makes sense that it's translated as weak, speaking of spiritual weakness. And there are many other examples throughout the New Testament where this word clearly means spiritually weak and not physically sick. And so we pick this up in verse fourteen. It says, Let him, when somebody is, is spiritually weak, let him call on the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. And this is a totally different word, this time, that's translated as sick. This is the word kamno, and it's only translated as sick in James chapter 5. Elsewhere in the Bible, it's translated as weary. For example, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 3 says, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted that you may not grow spiritually weary or faint-hearted. And it's worth noting that there are other words in the Greek that always, when they're translated, mean physically sick. And James did not use those words in this context. He used two words in two different cases that both can mean physically sick, but most of the time, cumulatively in the Bible, those words are translated as meaning weak or weary. And so as we look at the context of this letter uh, that's about endurance, it's about suffering, it's about persecution, and James is urging his readers, be steadfast, endure, don't break down, don't lose hope, don't lose your faith in the middle of all of this persecution. It makes sense that when we come to James chapter 5 and verse 13, he's talking to those who are spiritually weak and spiritually worthy. And so we can understand this passage to say, If is anyone among you spiritually weak, let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is spiritually weary, and the Lord will raise him up. So when somebody is spiritually weak and spiritually weary, they should call for the spiritually mature and the stable, the elders of the church. And there's a promise that the prayers for the spiritually weak and weary will bring about the power of the Lord. So what does the oil have to do with someone who is spiritually weak and spiritually weary? It says, let him call for the elders and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And sorry for all the Greek lessons today, but I think it's helpful and relevant. Um, The word here that's used is the word alepho, and there's actually two words in Greek that can be translated as to anoint. There's one that's purely secular in usage and there's one that's used in a religious or ceremonial term or a religious or ceremonial way. The word that James uses here is the one that's purely secular, just describing the pouring on and the covering of oil with somebody. It's the same... Uh, word is used in Luke 7, describing Jesus with the woman who anointed his feet. And she's, it says that he, she was standing behind him at his feet, weeping, and she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment, covered them with ointment. This wasn't like a religious or ceremonial activity. This was she just covered his feet with the oil. This, um, again, it's not a, a ceremony. The, the word literally means to rub or to oil up it could be understood as rubbing him with the oil in the name of the Lord. It doesn't mean dotting his forehead with a little dab of oil. It means rubbing or to have the oil crush over to cover. Same idea that's applied with um, the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10. He went and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and then set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn, and took care for him. He he oiled him, somebody who was injured and hurting. In those days, as today, athletes were often rubbed down with oil when they had sore muscles, and that was used to, to provide massage and to give them relief from soreness. Or in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 6, it says, From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened, with oil. In other words, when people are injured and hurting and they have bruises and sores and raw wounds, the readers of the book of James would have understood that the practice was to cover that person with oil to soften the body that had bruises and physical damage to it. This was the practice and the care for somebody who was physically injured and hurting. But again, the context here is about spiritual weakness and spiritual weariness in James chapter 5. And so it seems that James is applying a metaphor for the soul for somebody who is spiritually weak and spiritually weary. And he's providing this picture of oil to represent the care of the soul that comes when elders are praying. Prayers that stimulate and encourage and and massage your spirit by directing your hope to the one who has the power to raise the dead. It's a picture for the spiritually weary and for the spiritually uh, weak that when the prayers come, it's the same as when you have a physical injury and you provide oil to care for that injured person that when the soul is injured, the prayers work as a spiritual oil for the weak and for the weary. And then James says, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. And the word that's used for healed just means to be made whole. It's the same word used in Matthew 13 when Jesus said, for this people's heart has grown dull and with their ears they can barely hear and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Jesus is clearly in this passage talking about spiritual healing. And so when we see in James 5, confess your sins to one another, that's a spiritual condition, and pray for one another spiritually that you may be spiritually healed, to be restored. Let the weak and the weary ones be covered by, to be oiled up by the prayers of the, oil, of the elders, covering the wounded and hurting muscles of the soul. And let us also all pray for each other, being aware of the pain and the suffering of life, holding each other up before the Lord, confessing sins to each other, in a community that's striving together for the gospel, seeking the Lord together and for each other. This is simply just what church looks like. It's what church is supposed to be. So we come back to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, and Paul says, You also must help us by prayer, verse 11. You also must help us by prayer. He's calling for prayer. We must be praying for each other, praying that God's power would be seen, that we would trust him, that we would rely on him and let those prayers be the oil for our souls and for our hearts when we most need that, when we are beyond our capabilities, when we are beyond hope. And then we can give all thanks to God for his power. But I want you to note one last thing here this morning. In James, it was the elders praying for the weak and the weary. But here, in Second Corinthians, it's the Apostle Paul asking for prayer. And Paul does this often. It's the leader asking for prayer. So I ask, do you pray for the leaders at Grace Church? Do you pray for Pastor Mike, for the elders? I can tell you, we pray for you, virtually all of you by name. The elders spent the last two days at a retreat where the focus was prayer and Many of you were prayed for by name over the last couple of days. But do you pray for the elders and the leaders at Grace? This isn't quid pro quo, like I'll pray for you if you pray for me. But we all need to be dependent on the power of God. We all need to rely not on our own strength, but on the power of the one who raises the dead. And we, as leaders at Grace, we need you to all pray for us. Pastors and elders are human. We're all battling our own sins and temptations and burdens and worries and stresses and trials. Yes, God has gifted elders in certain ways, just as He's gifted everyone in the church. The elders' gifts are going to be in the areas of spiritual discernment and wisdom and teaching and the capacity to shoulder the burdens of others. And there's gifting to do those things and As we consider that, I'll confess that at times the burden that comes with that can be very heavy and sometimes it can be something that seems simply too much to bear. We all feel that at times. And you know what the result is of the gifting of elders who have the gifts but not the power of God? What happens when you have gifted leaders but no power of God? The answer is nothing. Nothing. Or to quote the great theologian Jana Elyra, nothing, nothing, absolutely nothing. Many of you won't get that, but some of you do. (laughs) Nothing happens without the power of God. God's power is what unleashes those gifts for the good of the church. And it's not about specific men, it's about the power of God. So, do you pray for the elders and the pastors of grace? Do you plead for the power of God to be unleashed? Dan Martin, Mike Shera, Tom Radmilovich, Ed Trenner, Matthew Holbrook, Paul Phillips, Alan Weisenberger, Brian Bush, Tom Lakata, Mark Holbrook, George Miklia, and Pete Roberts. Do you pray for our elders? Pray for each other. Pray for those who are weary and weak. Pray for those in pain. But remember the weak, fragile, fallible humans that God has placed to shepherd the flock here at Grace. Paul says, You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Yes, there's pain in life, But one of the main reasons of that pain is that God wants to direct us to rely not on ourselves, but on the God who raises the dead. And so let's pray for each other and rely on that power. Lord, thank you so much that you've called us to be the body of Christ, the visible representation of Jesus in this world. And as broken and sinful as we are, we live in a broken and sinful world where there's pain and suffering and persecution. And God, you allow us to come to the end of ourselves at times simply so that we would look to the one who has ultimate power, ultimate sovereignty, and that we would trust in you, the one who has the power to raise the dead. And so, God... Would you direct our attention in that way? Would you give us a love for each other and for you that we'd be praying for each other, that we would pray for the leaders here at Grace, and God, that you would bless this church in ways where we would grow in our trust and our dependence on you in every way, expressing our dependence to you in prayer all the time. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Would you stand if you're able as we close?
0: Blessed be your name In the land that is plentiful Where streams of abundance flow Blessed be your name Blessed be your name When I'm found in a desert place Though I walk through the wilderness Blessed be your name blessed be your glorious name blessed be your name when the sun's shining down on me when the world's all as it should be blessed be your name Blessed be your name On the road marked with suffering Though there's pain in the offering Blessed be a name Every blessing you pour out i turn back to praise When the darkness closes in, Lord, still I will say, Blessed be the name of the Lord, blessed be your name. Blessed be the name of the Lord, blessed be your glorious name. Give and take away. You give and take away, my heart will choose to say, Lord, blessed be your name. You give and take away, you give and take away, my heart will choose to say, Lord, blessed be your name, and blessed be the name of the
2: We have two mission trips coming up that we want to encourage you to be praying for, leaving on February 2nd. We have a team that we've already discussed that's going to Zambia and Malawi. Um, let's be praying for them, and especially for Pastor Mike, that he would be healthy and good and ready to go. And then there's a team going to Tijuana with Homes of Hope, led by Glenn Perry, on leaving on February 17th. There's a midweek service this Wednesday. encourage you to be part of that. This Friday, um, the men are gathering And uh, there's going to be teaching on how to lead in the church, and Mark Holbrook will be leading that. And then this Friday night from 6 o'clock to 10 o'clock in the NPR, we have family game night. So I want to encourage you to be part of that. So as we close here this morning, I want to read from the end of Ephesians chapter 3, where Paul says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, According to the power at work within us, to bring to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.
0: Sovereign in the mountain air, sovereign on the ocean floor.